Hello and welcome to this week's panel edition of The Bunker with me, Alex Andreu. Coming up on today's show, it took the Taliban only a week to reassert itself over the whole of Afghanistan. It's fair to ask, what was it all for? We know everyone is tired of talking about this pandemic, so we thought we might talk about the next one. Leeds University has just been chosen by the World Health Organization to help prepare a global health strategy. Professor Garrett Brown is here to explain what the world needs to do. And finally, never a dull moment, is curry being cancelled? All that and more on this week's Bunker. (laughs) Welcome back to the Bunker Roundtable. Let's meet today's panel. First up, back on the bunker, hello to writer, broadcaster, and my favorite comedian of all time, Ahir Shah. Thank you very much, Alex. I mean, I, I would have called you my favorite comedian of all time, but the Nile joke was bloody hell. You dissed me last time and people loved it. <laughs> <laughs> I hear some Nike and Adidas factories have been forced to close in South Asia due to COVID outbreaks. What does it say about the West that we have hoarded three times the vaccine doses we need, have ignored calls from desperate countries, and only became interested in what is happening in the developing world when it affects the luxury goods on our kids' Christmas list? Well, sadly, uh, it's relatively unsurprising that this is the sort of thing that it would take to bring the issue into the public consciousness. I mean, it's uh, it, it sort of reminds me of the fact that we're like, oh, everything's fine, everything's fine, and all of a sudden your shelves in your supermarket aren't quite as full, and you're like, oh, shit, HGV drivers are actually people who <laughs> exist and aren't here anymore. <laughs> and do uh, jobs. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um so sadly, that's um, it seems like perhaps it's just an inevitable bit of human nature. But if this sort of thing and an increased awareness of the fact that, you know, as we move, hopefully inexorably towards some sense of inverted commas freedom here, that we're not safe until we all are and that uh, we need to be a lot more forthcoming in terms of providing the developing world with vaccine doses, then perhaps if this is what it takes, then it's a good thing. Yes, maybe the invisible hand will finally stop playing with itself. (laughs) Also with me, writer, editor, and my favourite glam metal expert of all time, Justin Quirk. Justin, thank you for stepping in at the last minute. We didn't intend this to be a manual, but since unforeseen circumstances have forced our hand, uh, I intend to fully enjoy this all-you-can-eat sausage buffet. (laughs) (laughs) Picking up on this, but the testosterone levels are absolutely through the roof. (laughs) Flicking each other with towels, bit of bawdy humour, bit of locker room talk among the lads. It's uh, it's, it's pretty hetero, I can say. (laughs) Talking about uh, flicking each other with wet towels, the Labour Party. is once again ablaze over the expulsion of director Ken Loach. Um, Justin, explain to me why it was wrong to expel Ken Loach. Hmm. Uh, well, this is like being uh, one of those debating societies in the posh school where you have to uh, adopt the, the two positions and uh, writing two letters over Brexit. Uh, uh-huh. It's wrong to expel Ken Loach because I think the 
the argument would be he's a venerable filmmaker who, over his career, has done a huge amount to put issues around not just socialism, but more broadly social justice into the public realm. He is clearly a man with good intentions, and the signal his expulsion sends out is that people who do not 100% conform to centrist orthodoxy have no place in the modern Labour Party, and a party which has traditionally always been a broad church. Okay, now explain to me why it was right to expel Ken Loach. Oh, that's an easier task. Um, (laughs) I think because in the last few years, and I say this as someone who has been a Labour member, you know, most of my adult life until a couple of years ago, uh, because in the last few years, all the problems which have beset that party, anti-Semitism has been the key, not just in terms of the scale, um, which I think, you know, people can argue about, but in the way that I think it's become a sort of moral litmus test for the party and the people around it. And while Loach... Uh, I would say very carefully here for legal reasons. I don't think he's been in a position where you could safely call him anti-Semitic. He has been around the fringes of attitudes, which I think make a lot of Jewish and also non-Jewish members very uncomfortable. So things like, you know, the BBC clip where he says, history is for all of us to discuss when asked very directly about Holocaust denial. That wasn't a quote that was twisted. It wasn't misrepresented. Uh, And then immediately, which I actually think was the worst part of her interview, was after saying that, pivoting immediately to discussing Israel, as if there was this sort of axiomatic link between the two. Yeah, he was calling for Labour MPs to be expelled for attending anti-Semitism demonstrations, using terms like purge and witch hunt about the four groups who've been expelled recently. And, you know, let's not forget, he's also been a member of two other political parties which were campaigning specifically against Labour in recent elections. So I think that's why it's the right thing to do. In terms of what is needed, I think this is what, to me, is really interesting. I think Labour's reputation... And I think as political geeks, we overlook this. The party's reputation with most voters is still absolutely in the tank after the Corbyn years. And given how little attention most people pay politics, but especially during a pandemic, they need some really drastic moves to cut through and signal to regular swing voters and disaffected Tories that the party is seriously under new management. They need something on the scale of Kinnock at conference in 85. Now, this may not be it, but I think going after a high-profile figure like Loach has cut through. Finally, welcome to our special guest this week, the Chair of Political Theory and Global Health Policy at the University of Leeds and my favourite Political Theory and Global Health Policy professor of all time, Garrett Brown. Welcome to the bunker, Garrett. Thank you. Garrett, you started out as a political theory scholar with a focus on philosophy and jurisprudence. How did you end up in health policy, or is that not as big a leap as it might appear to me? Uh, It's a big leap. Uh, While I was doing my PhD at the uh, London School of Economics, I was asked to work on a large project looking at global institutions and health. And some of those were so new that overnight I became an expert, uh, in fact, the only expert on two of them. And it just snowballed from there. How is moral philosophy holding up under the weight of overlapping crises of the pandemic, the reemergence of populism, the climate emergency, etc.? I think moral practice is holding up badly, but moral theory is in high demand. So if moral theory is about what we should or what we ought to do in the face of collective action problems, we need it more now than we've ever needed it. You had a focus on the teachings of Immanuel Kant, uh, especially cosmopolitanism. He described uh, human capacity for deception, I think, as the foul stain of our species. 
What would he have made of today's treaty-breaking, vaccine-hoarding, refugee-victimizing, isolationist UK? Uh, I think you would have thought that uh, we've missed the bigger picture, basically, that uh, sort of the post-1790 Kant was all about the cosmopolitan order. And one of the things he would say is that uh, a system uh, requires the system to be intact if you have overlapping rights and overlapping systems of fate and overlapping communities of fate, then anytime one of those pillars falls, then everyone's at risk. So I think he would think that uh, basically uh, the selfish nature of the international order at the moment is going to be its own demise. Yes, it was quite a leading question, for which I apologize. <laughs> um, we will be talking to Garrett much more throughout the program. I especially look forward to his views on what makes a good biryani. First of all, we have to start with events in Afghanistan, where it turns out that my enemy's friend's enemy's enemy is my frenemy was not an entirely coherent Middle Eastern policy. I hear... Will it be a huge relief to the Afghan population that Dominic Raab took time from his Mediterranean holiday to Google where is Afghanistan and then tweet to tell the Taliban that violence is just not nice? Quite. I mean, I think that this entire story has just been so broadly and shatteringly depressing, right? And uh, everything else in the world seemingly sort of pales in comparison uh, in terms of just the significance of the speed at which this horror has unfolded. Yes, I think this is the angriest I have seen you on Twitter. Yes, yes, quite. And I think that the only thing that can provide any sense of relief is something that is well within our capacity to do, which is actually providing the assurances to those particularly who worked for and with us over the course of the last 20 years in Afghanistan that them and their families will be safe and have refuge here. And that is something that I hope is going to, like, I know that there have been certain changes in recent time, like at the time of recording, the uh, Shevening scholars were then given their visas, which it seemed like wasn't going to be fast tracked. Uh, And I know that um, the British ambassador was in person at Kabul airport, uh, making sure that as many visas were processed as possible. So very big uh, respect and credit to them. I really feel at a time like this that it would be useful if the Home Office weren't essentially an audio loop of someone doing an evil laugh, but uh, that's where we are. (laughs) Justin, Defence Secretary Ben Wallace told Sky News on Monday morning that he genuinely did not know the Foreign Secretary was away. Chevening scholarships for this year have been put on hold because apparently they cannot be administered in time. The UN is having its second Security Council meeting in a week. Are these indications of how genuinely surprised everyone has been by the speed of what's happened? I think everyone has, or broadly everyone has been legitimately surprised. And I'd recommend if if listeners haven't heard it, the bunker start week from this week with Arthur Snell was excellent. And in it, Arthur was quite upfront about how even someone like him with a very detailed knowledge of the country from you know, working there was taken aback by the speed of the collapse. But I think taking a, a slight step back, I think what we're also seeing is the kind of thing which happens when a country is and has been focusing its attention on completely the wrong things. And what I mean by that is for the last five years, in terms of our view on foreign policy and where we've directed our attention and the conversation who have we regarded as our enemies and our 
imminent problems, basically Paris, Brussels and Berlin. The amount of time and energy that we have poured into self-made disputes. You know, we have entire governmental departments whose job is to, you know, engage us with the outside world and see what's coming down the pipe. And because of this sort of enormous attention drain and sink of Brexit, and again, I'm sorry to sound like a stuck record with all problems going back to this, and I know this isn't the direct issue in relation to these poor people in Afghanistan, but we've basically been asleep at the switch in terms of wider global policy because everything in terms of our you know bandwidth seems to have been focused on relatively footling disputes much closer to home that we have created and inflamed ourselves. Garrett, is this the first time a former US president is basically saying his own foreign policy was so obviously shite, the sitting <laughs> president should resign over not reversing it? I, yeah, I mean, I can't remember a president being so honest about uh, dropping the ball, or at least not seeing something as being more problematic than it is. I mean, it's um, it's slightly refreshing, though. Um, <laughs> I mean, it shows a self-awareness that we haven't seen in politics in a long time. I'm not a huge Biden fan, but it was refreshing to hear a, a president say, oh, I've got it wrong. Uh, this this is what was not what I was expecting. Whereas you know we we have all these politicians these days that they just don't want to ever seem like they're wrong, and they never want to apologize for making a, a miscalculation. So I guess it's kind of refreshing. Mm. Do you think this will have any impact on midterms in fifteen months' time? I had a big debate with someone on, on Twitter about this, and the the one assumption that was underlying it, which I didn't agree with was that enough American people care enough about foreign policy. Jeez, well, as, as a citizen in the United States and a citizen of the UK, Ooh. I can tell you that the, the Americans tend to be very self-focused. Uh, I, so I don't think that that's a wrong thing to say. I think most Americans, a good 70% of them, are very much just interested in the American lifestyle and probably would also, with Dominic, need to Google, where is Afghanistan? <laughs> yeah, I don't think that's a bad prediction. But he, he has 70% approval on the withdrawal at the moment. So I can't see that changing too radically. And the ones that would challenge him, uh, sort of the Trump supporters, have been beating this drum for a long time already. So it would seem like a massive reversal for them to suddenly come after Joe Biden for doing what President Trump had threatened to do in May. But they never surprise me at how they can spin their own words and then make someone else guilty of the exact same thing they've been promoting. Justin, a senior military source told journalist Daniel Trilling that the Home Office is reluctant to give many of these people asylum because of the message it will send to other refugees. What message might that be? I mean, God, what a shameful and yet horribly believable quote that is. Um, it just has, sort of the ring of, just has the ring of veracity about it, doesn't it, when you hear it? Um, yeah, I mean, I think the message that they're framing in their language is Britain is a soft touch and you might just be able to make a life here as a you know full human being. Um, sadly, I think the calculation is being made that the rump of conservative supporters and the media will ultimately be less troubled by Afghans being oppressed or killed than they would be by Afghans arriving in their towns to be rehoused. Now, the one hope I have, and not to look for a sliver of optimism here, is that 
there may be an element, a small element of miscalculation. And there's a way this story may be told and perceived of loyalty or of military sacrifice of the protection of the most vulnerable people, which could fit in with one of, say, you know, the male has these kind of periodic campaigns for sort of quite a decent issue. Now, I don't know, and I think much depends on the scenes that we start to emerge, see start to emerge from Afghanistan over the days and weeks ahead. It's obviously, you know, a very, very fast-moving situation. But if this starts to look like we have cut and run in a way redolent of, say, the Dutch at Srebrenica, I can see a way in which that would strongly offend the right's weird proprietorial sense of, you know, quote-unquote, who we are as a country. Um, I think you've seen that sort of that moralistic Tory sense articulated most strongly this week by people like Tom Tugendhat and Rory Stewart. Um, but I think, yeah, that I think there may be a way that it becomes costly to the government if they continue to sort of sit on their hands. But as I, said, I think a lot of that will depend on how things pan out over the next few days and weeks. I hear in the general horror and awfulness, there was one report from Kabul that really made my hair stand that within hours of their entering the city, beauty salons had their windows painted over. Hmm. Will it be mainly women and girls who once again pay the highest price? I mean, it's the Taliban. So, like, like yeah, quite. That, that doesn't seem like a real stretch, you know? Uh, and I think that the thing that was really distressing, well, it's all really distressing, but... Um, I read that like the median age in Afghanistan is like 18. So the like majority of the population of Afghanistan were born after the Taliban had got, you know, born mm. after the Taliban's mm. period of, of rule in 96 to 2001. And just the fact that there's going to be, yeah, this generation of young people and particularly young girls who will have had certain opportunities and abilities uh, who are just going to see the, door slammed on them uh, by these regressive uh, monsters is awful. Garrett, the the US, to be a little bit realpolitik, because we, we did tend to overinflate the importance of the UK in these situations, the US having stuck to its withdrawal plan, what could the UK have done differently? Could it have done something differently? Can it still do something differently now? I don't think it could have done anything differently. This whole thing has been propped up by U.S. money and U.S. arms. So I don't think the U.K. could have done something months ago to try to, to stem this tide. I, I think it was coming. I think even the U.S. Uh, military knew that this was coming. I mean, they predicted three months. But there are some, I was reading today, some generals, uh, Petraeus being one of them, saying that, that they weren't too shocked how quickly it happened. So I don't think the U.K. really had much that it could do. I don't think they will negotiate outside the United States either, but they could. So what could they do differently moving forward? Uh, one would be to obviously give refuge to those who have assisted the UK and the United States and others in Afghanistan. I think that's the morally right thing to do, uh, because I do think they're in imminent harm. It's the morally minimum thing to do, yeah, I, would, I would offer. But they could do more. So what they could do is... Uh, we could offer soft power initiatives uh, and incentives with the idea of, the, of holding the Taliban to the word that they've been saying, which is that it's going to be a much more inclusive government. 
that there, there won't be uh, revenge killings and that they will make strong suggestions, but they won't force people to do certain things and that if people surrender, they won't kill them, et cetera, et cetera. So through soft power means of development aid and other things that we have available um, outside of military operations, we could potentially use those in such a way to encourage more of that behavior than less. Now, how successful that is, who knows, but at least it's still an option that's available, uh, while all other options seem to be closing fast. And I just read about the Kabul airport. Uh, the U.S. military says that um, if the situation doesn't improve quickly, they may leave all non-American citizens behind, which would be another terrible message. But we'll see how that pans out, because the Taliban did promise to say that uh, they wouldn't attack the airport prior to September 11th in order for Biden to have his, you know, his symbolic withdrawal. Yeah, they're not famously uh, solid at their word. No. I hear Conservative MP and Chairman of the Foreign Affairs Committee, Tom Tugendhat, has not been shy in his criticism. He's described this as the biggest foreign policy disaster since Suez. Might the scale of the cruelty and incompetence actually cut through to voters? Firstly, on what was just being discussed, I'm not uh, wildly optimistic about the ability to take the Taliban at their word. You know, it's like uh, I've I've always been reminded of that um, Simpsons joke where Homer is just like, Mr. Burns, I think we can trust the president of Cuba. And it's like, well, can you on this one? But I, I do think that there seems to me that there might be something a bit different about this because it seems like in general I know that there's sadly a lot of uh, hostility towards um, refugees coming here in this country but when it comes to be something that seems so black and white as these people were interpreters for our military when we invaded their country and now that like if we don't help them we are basically sentencing them to death right because the, they they helped us uh and to me that just seems sufficiently cut and shut that even people who their natural inclination might be that oh i'm a bit you know worried about uh the scale of immigration or refugees into the country and everything i would think that on this as a sort of case-by-case basis uh situation and in this particular case i would assume that more people even if on the face of it, they were generally opposed to such things, would say, in this instance, it's so clearly the right thing to do. Now that this pandemic is over, spoilers, it is not, there are some party poopers agitating for having a serious conversation about what went right and what went wrong, for learning lessons to take forward to the next pandemic. No thanks cries the public, or at least the government, who claim to have an exclusive understanding of the people's priorities. Apparently, we all need to take a breath, go back to normal, enjoy life a bit, an attitude which assumes the next lot of deadly viruses are in some virus flat share somewhere, thinking, fair enough, let's give them a few years. (laughs) Such willful idiocy is usually followed, we now know, by apologies and VAP lanes for pub landlords and much shrugging and claims of this is an unprecedented situation. But if it is not the most central responsibility of governments to plan for, react to, and protect their citizens from the unprecedented, what other more pressing duties do they have? Garrett, 
you recently took part in an International Science Council discussion on this pandemic. Mm-hmm. And the central assumption was that 60% of the world population will be vaccinated within about five years. Is the notion that this pandemic is over one of the biggest threats facing us right now? I think that's fair to say. Now, that's not their official uh, report, which is still being written. But when when I made that projection, not a lot of people disagreed with it. So I think we could, we could say that there's a, a large consensus of, of experts who think that the world is not going to see anything close to full vaccination within five years. And to think that we are not going to have to live with this, uh, I think, is a misstep. Have we put too much emphasis on vaccines as the the single route out of the pandemic? Is there a more diversified pandemic response that we could look at? Well, absolutely. We are obsessed with what I call the Pasteurian paradigm, which is one pathogen, one cure. So what you do is you wait to for something to emerge. You isolate and protect the population as much as you can through lockdowns and other measures, and then you wait for vaccine discovery, and then you roll it out. We've seen how that works. It's not terribly efficient or effective. So we we need a more holistic approach to this, which has much more on preparedness and prevention. So even now, when we look at policy circles and what people are talking about, there's a, there's a good recognition that we weren't prepared. But there's little talk about prevention, and there's many things we can do to try to alleviate, but not obviously remove the threat from, uh, of new pathogens out there, whether those are bacterial or, or viruses or parasitic. You've been sort of in the policy room during this pandemic. Um, I, I'm sure papers will be written for many decades on lessons to take forward. Um, from this pandemic to the next one. But what what's the short version? What do you think are the key, key learnings that that we need to implement now? Yeah, I'm going to go two levels. At, at the global level, uh, the key learn... Well, let me just back up a little bit. In, in 2015, I was at the G7 in Germany, and there Obama and Cameron and Merkel and others said that Ebola had been a wake-up call And they tried to put into place stronger global institutions, but they failed miserably. So at the global level, we had a failure across kind of three zones. The international health regulations, which are meant to sort of alert people to new emerging threats, to share information, to align travel restrictions, to make sure the WHO is coordinating these things, they completely failed. Um, China violated them, the UK violated them, everyone violated the international health regulations, and less than 50% of countries are compliant with them. So you, you, you just have a, a system that was put in place. It's, a, it's an imperfect system, but even that imperfect system failed. Uh, other things like the Pandemic Emergency Fund, which was supposed to give $500 million within 72 hours of an epidemic threat, not just a pandemic threat, uh, sat idle, that was not used, and it was quietly taken off. It's no longer in existence. and It's just a huge embarrassment. So I think at the global level, we just need a series of institutions and coordinating mechanisms that just weren't there. And what this pandemic showed is just how badly they, they were designed and how badly they performed. And let me give you just one other little factoid that might be interesting. 
The WHO uh, Preparedness Index ranked the United States number one and Britain number two in pandemic preparedness. And yet those two countries performed, you know, pretty much at the bottom. And so you have to think about, you know, what institutional mechanisms we have and are they fit for purpose? And the answer is no. At the national level, we were completely unprepared. I was in some of the, the cabinet office meetings in the beginning, and my first impression was, wow, they're so open to ideas. They really want to hear from us and what we have to say about things. Uh, and then it quickly dawned on me that they actually had no idea what was going on, and, and they had no plan. So there was no good preparedness plan at the national level, and we have undercut public health so badly through austerity and other kind of efficiency mechanisms. We're so obsessed with technical efficiencies within the NHS. We've basically created an unhealthy population, largely, with an unadaptive NHS. And I think those two lessons are going to stick um, because enough of us have said them and enough of us have written reports that are being read by hopefully the right people that some of those lessons will be uh, included in and any policy reforms. By the end of May, the UK was vaccinating nearly 600,000 people daily. And the average is now around 200,000. The UK has been overtaken by seven EU countries and is due to end up below even the EU average by the end of September. Hmm. After a great start, why are we falling behind? I wouldn't go by the daily number. Uh, I would go by the total vaccinated. So I think we still have a rather high total vaccinated number. And we got off the starting block much quicker than Europe. So Europe is playing catch up to, to us in, total, in terms of total numbers. But you're always going to see a, a plateau at the end. Um, you're always going to run up against the vaccine hesitant crowd. You're always going to the anti-vaxxers. And so it's always that last push that is the most difficult. So the vaccination rate is basically a reflection of having a wider pool of people still to vaccinate, as it were. The more that pool of people becomes narrow, the more your vaccination rate rate will slow naturally. Yeah, I think that's right. And Europe is behind us. Can we predict the next pandemic? Can we predict when it will happen? What is it likely to be? There's a 100% chance that we'll see another pandemic in the next, I would say, 15 to 20 years. That I, I don't think there's any doubt in my mind. So as we reach 10 billion people by 2050, I believe it is, uh, as we encroach further and further into natural environments that we haven't been before, uh, as we become more densely uh, populated in urban centers where diseases can spread much quicker, I think you're going to see an acceleration of the number of pandemics, or at least large epidemics threatening to be pandemics uh, in the near future. So I would say in the next 15 to 20 years, you'll see another one like this. I don't think it will be parasitic or bacterial. I think it will be viral. Uh, It will be zoonotic, meaning from uh, animal origin. It will be and, and so you'll, you'll have it being transferred from animals to humans. It will probably, since it's a virus, it will probably be, um, let's see, highly infectious, but not as infectious as measles. So it will probably be the same infectiousness as the first variant of COVID, or as SARS-CoV-2, excuse me. 
Meanwhile, Australia is seen as one of COVID's success stories, with fewer than a thousand deaths as of the time of this recording during the entire pandemic. However, much of the country is now back in lockdown. Did Australia squander its COVID advantage? We spoke to someone who knows. So my name is Latika Burke. I'm a journalist with the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age in London, and I've been based here for five years. So Australia is currently experiencing quite a high outbreak of coronavirus. Keep in mind that it has pursued a zero COVID strategy for about a year now. So currently there are just over 6,000 active cases in the country. This is probably the most severe outbreak that the country's had in terms of cases since Victoria went into a very long lockdown last year. Australia's vaccine rollout got off to a really bad start. One was government procurement. The government waited a long time to even sign contracts. By the time it did, it found that many of its allies and and other countries had hoovered up the available vaccines. Then when it did sign vaccine deals, it backed a trial in Australia that was being developed that fell through. And so it was left with Pfizer and AstraZeneca. Now, Australia is rare. It's one of the few countries that can produce AstraZeneca on shore. But what has happened in the interim is the blood clots. Now, in the UK, we have seen blood clots, of course, and that's not caused a massive dip in take-up or community support. In Australia, it's been the complete opposite You now have the situation in Australia where there are millions of unused AstraZeneca jabs. Last time I checked, it was around 3 million. 3 million doses that Australians don't want to take because they're so scared of the risk of blood clotting. Because keep in mind, until now, they've had so few deaths from coronavirus that it actually was the case for a while there that the threat of dying from a blood clot was actually a higher risk than the threat of dying from coronavirus. Now, that is beginning to repair itself in some way, but you will find in Australia the majority of the community is waiting for Pfizer. And because the federal government was so late to sign deals with Pfizer, it's now experiencing very delayed supply and probably won't get enough Pfizer jabs to offer to the entire eligible population until the uh, later part of this year, probably around the end of this year. Zero COVID has enjoyed huge support in Australia. For uh, the first year of the pandemic, they looked at the UK, they looked at the US and said, well, we're not that horror show, Uh, good on us. And in fact, It wasn't just good on us, it was we've done something better than those bigger countries and it not just bred uh, complacency but it was actually, I think, breeding conceit in the Australian people that they had somehow done something better, never minding, of course, that they'd done something unique in locking their own citizens out and locking their own citizens in, when, of course, this has all become undone. uh, The criticism has turned towards the federal government's failure to procure those vaccines. And so this is coming at a very rocky time for the Prime Minister. There is an enormous risk that Australia's insularity, or what I would call their Brexit moment experienced through this pandemic, actually becomes baked in and becomes something much more long-term. And so it's very easy to see a scenario where Australia commits to not only just vaccinating, but a suppression strategy of coronavirus going forward because they have had no societal discussion about what sort of transmission levels, what sort of hospitalisation rates and what sort of death rates they might have to tolerate or even accept 
once the country is vaccinated. Now, if that's the case, they can kiss goodbye several key uh, economic sectors for themselves, tourism, obviously international education and some others. And so far, it does seem like the bulk of the community would support that. So obviously, from the outside looking in, that's not desirable for Australia and nobody would want to see the Australian society turn inwards, but it is a risk. And without the political leadership, I think that that is a very, very likely scenario. I don't think that will fare for Australia well. And I also don't think that will fare for the Western world well, because we're dealing with some very big challenges at the moment. And an outward open Australia is crucial to some of those. Garrett, Australia has gone for a zero COVID approach. Is it sustainable in the long run? No. (laughs) It was very good early on to do in order to get yourself and your house in order to think about what the evidence was suggesting. But for you to plan long-term on this strategy, I think, is is a miscalculation. That's that's bearing fruit. You can see this across across many countries that that took that position Mm. early. Countries like Vietnam had done exceptionally well and are now experiencing a pretty bad, essentially, first wave. Um, Justin... Do you think that proves the the siren voices who wanted to allow the virus to just rip through were actually right after all? Or is it that, as Garrett says, uh, it's about using that time wisely and a lot of countries didn't? Yeah, I mean, I would obviously defer to Garrett's uh, superior knowledge on this. But um, no, I don't think uh, they were right to call for that process of things ripping through, partly because many of the places where people were suggesting it should happen, just don't have the infrastructure or capabilities to, you know, cope with that kind of wave. To Garrett's point about needing a shift into sort of long-term thinking, um, I recently, for the bunker, interviewed Thomas Poyo, um, who's the author of the enormously circulated essay, The Hammer and the Dance. And he was pretty clear that the two crucial things <clears throat> which must be factored in are speed, you know, don't let perfect be the enemy of good in terms of your response. But also he talked also about that shift towards thinking of this as a much longer term and evolving issue. You know, strategy is going to evolve. So, you know, lockdowns have to come with a strategy for reopening, you know, and progress is not going to be linear. So it's not enough just to have said at one point, okay, we shut everything down, we've closed the borders. If you don't then have, you know, a realistic sort of exit strategy. And I think as much as anything, Aside from a medical issue, we've seen how this has been a failure of messaging. You know, the obsession with sort of key dates, milestones, certain calendar events having to take place. Whereas I sort of feel the public could maybe have handled a touch more realism and being told to expect this to be more like a war in its duration rather than, you know, a sort of prolonged holiday. Mm. It's it's an interesting uh, uh, thread coming together from, from our first two items, countries going into things without having the faintest clue of an exit strategy. I hear if Australia needs some kind of vaccine incentive, what do you think it should be? Feel free to plumb the depth of cheap <laughs> stereotypes for this. <laughs> well, uh, perhaps they do. I've, yeah, just give people cash or whatever. But um, I, I'm genuinely... <laughs> I'm genuinely interested in like, it seems to me that most countries either fall into one or two, like either you did so badly, like we did here and like had loads of places, loads of deaths. And then people were like, 
oh god, this is a uh, this is severe. Uh, let's get these jabs, and then you end up uh, jabbing your country quicker. Or you have countries who are sort of managed to keep it out to a greater extent and keep the cases down and the deaths down, say Australia, New Zealand, but they seem to be a lot more languid on the vaccination thing, maybe because they just feel like, oh, well, we're keeping it down regardless, so is the vaccine stuff really that necessary? And so, like, Garrett, are there any countries that have done both, you know, like done both well? Finland did very well, I think. We just did a project for the WHO and we're looking at good case studies of countries that did well and Finland did very well. As in they kept the cases down and the vaccines very high? They did that and they also kept the financial flow for like private businesses, small businesses going very early. And so they, they relieved some of the pressure on the economy and relieved some of the stress about doing what the government said because there, the safety nets were put in place very early. Of course it was going to be a Scandi country, I'm furious. <laughs> well done, Finland. <laughs> they also right. have a smaller population, which, which helps. You know. Yeah, there are like six guys there, so I'm sure fine. Yeah. Like, There's not six guys in Finland. There's at least ten. Um, <laughs> I've slept with him. <laughs> <laughs> the word curry clubs together a diverse range of world foods, but food bloggers are fighting back. Another word is, if one is to believe the screeching headlines, at risk of being cancelled for its colonial connections. So is this really good night to curry night? Faima Bakar, life reporter at HuffPost, tells us why curry isn't being cancelled. My name is Faima Bakar. I am currently a life reporter at HuffPost. So what's happening right now with this whole council curry thing is that two food bloggers, they basically questioned why the word curry is used as an umbrella term to describe several South Asian dishes. The initial chef from California who posted the Instagram video, all she said was, there's a saying that the food in India changes every 100 kilometers, and yet we're still using this umbrella term popularized by white people during colonial times who couldn't be bothered to learn the actual names of our dishes. But this kind of got misconstrued into, you know, curry is cancelled and it's like, you know, woke culture gone mad. All they said was we should just call items what they are, subsi, murgi, which means chicken, rather than homogenize very different food items. It's kind of akin to someone saying, don't just say pasta, say linguine, fettuccine, which we do anyway. But if someone had said that, I don't think we'd see the same outrage. It's kind of a complex thing that kind of got sensationalised because there is a colonial context in this as well. Because according to historians, British colonial officers had misheard the word curry, which is Tamil to mean side dish. And they kind of ran off with that and labelled everything, all sorts of South Asian dishes as curry. And that's one theory on how that whole thing got popularised. These two bloggers were just saying, be more specific, that's all it was. But the story got blown out of proportion. One key component of culture wars is to say that, oh, so-and-so is now cancelled because it's, it's cheap bait, it gets outrage clicks and it starts fierce debate. Framing it in the way that it has been and sensationalising it entrenches the whole ethnic minorities as whingers trope. You know, the, the very aim of culture wars is to deepen divides between different groups and that's exactly 
what this kind of story achieved. I would say curry isn't being cancelled. People are not going to stop using the word. It would be nice if more people just started calling things by their specific names. But I don't think you're going to offend anyone by going to an Indian restaurant and saying, I'll have a chicken curry, please. Like no one's going to be like, you can't say that. You don't have to censor yourself. No one's trying to silence you from saying the word curry. So nothing actually has changed. It's just two people express their opinions and they should be allowed to do that. So yeah, just to sum it up, I think decolonizing food will, the conversation will definitely continue and it probably has been happening currently. And I do hope we see more of it, but in a more nuanced way. I hear Faima compares the story to Italian chefs asking people to refer to specific kinds of pasta, like linguine, rather than using the generic term. Is that a fair comparison? Well, see, I think that if an Italian chef were to ask me to refer to a specific kind of pasta, I would try my absolute hardest to get it wrong at every turn, because... (laughs) um, Italians being furious about people not doing food the correct way is one of the most funny things in the history of the world. I want to go to an Italian restaurant and work in the kitchen and ask what pen pasta is. Uh, <laughs> like, oh, this 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 spaghetti. Do I just I just snap it in half, right? Because it's a bit big for the pot. So, well, where do you it. keep the alphabetic spaghetti? Is it? <laughs> <laughs> Listen, just go and order a, a dish with a with a seafood sauce and then ask for cheese on top. That'll do yeah. it. Um, uh, Justin, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go there and look at their spaghetti and be like, oh, how long does it take to separate the eyes from all of the other letters? <laughs> Faima is from Bangladesh, and she says she has never eaten a vindaloo at home. Are these things basically a Western invention? Well, I mean, I've, I've never had a vindaloo at home either. I think that it, it is, you know, it's a, it's a sort of nice thing of different uh, cultures and palates and what have you uh, coming together. Generally, most of what uh, called Indian restaurants in the UK uh, sort of in decades past were uh, often started by people from the Silet region of Bangladesh. Uh, and they just went like, oh, we'll call it Indian restaurant because people know what India is <laughs> uh, and everything. But I, I think it's just... Um, it's a nice example of an immigrant story, like bringing a new dish to a culture and uh, everyone everyone learning off one another. Justin, every, wouldn't have a <laughs> every time I post something Greek uh, on Instagram, I get 100 messages about how various places all around the world have a very similar dish that's called something else. Isn't all food cultural appropriation? I mean, to a degree, yes, because, you know, when people travel, they take their food with them. So it becomes a part of those stories of cultural movement. And, you know, one of the great joys of eating abroad is when you find something which is somehow redolent of something from your own upbringing, but has been mm. altered or elevated in some way by a local ingredient. And I sort of find, you know, that tracing of the way that foods evolve as you move around the globe in the same way that, you know, you can see how languages evolve from sort of one country to the next is absolutely fascinating. I hear curry, though, is used widely by chefs of South Asian heritage to sell books and recipes and TV programs. And like you were saying, the you know the, the restaurants are called Indian because that's what people know. So one might argue they should take a lead in educating the world. But when they do, they get shouted down for can- cancel culture. Is there any way for a brown person to win in this? Look, I have... I have often thought two things, and those are I should take the lead in educating the world and that there is no way for a brown person to win in this. Uh, so. 
Justin, Faima suggests that this has been used to perpetuate the trope of ethnic minorities as left-wing whingers. Is no area of life safe from being enlisted in the culture wars at the moment? Oh, no, of course not. I mean, everything that can and will be will be roped into it. But I will say this, that as a you know, white English person, if the war is on, they will, they will prize my extremely <laughs> mild korma from the cold, dead hand. Also, I was going to give a special mention to... Uh, I find that offensive and I'm not even from that region. <laughs> Just something really mild, plain rice, naan bread. Uh, the, um, the Desi Puffs of Birmingham. I think if you want to see, you know, this sort of cultural crossover at its absolute finest, the genius Indian families who came up with the idea of taking over really ropey, run-down boozers and basically doing away with the bar snacks and replacing them with freshly made onion barges and samosas. If you have not been to one of these pubs, you are basically missing the apex of Western modern civilization. They are incredible places. <laughs> and if you're, a, if you're a Londoner, a shout out to the Gladstone Arms in Borough, uh, who, are, who are similar, sort Ooh. of uh, Indian-owned pub. Very nice place. Is this discussion around decolonizing food happening exclusively in the West, or are there vibrant debates about the correct way to make a tortilla de patatas on Indian blogs and people raging about why you must never add cream to a carbonara and Japanese left-wing forums? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a universal thing. You know, it's like the other day I was uh, putting, um, I, I put chili flakes on a uh, roast potato and my mother told me how insensitive I was being to generations <laughs> of white people. Uh, <laughs> By making it taste of anything. <laughs> Garrett. What would Immanuel Kant's advice be on the subject? Well, we're going to go with the post-1790 Kant, because the earlier version was a, a racist colonial apologist. Um, <laughs> so I, I think the late Kant, for whatever reason, becoming a cosmopolitan, he would say that uh, all these cultures are uh, evolving mixes of appropriation of other cultures. So if you are to be cosmopolitan, and the world is to be cosmopolitan, then you have to recognize that that longingness for authenticity is not going to be there, that that's a political construction, not an actually natural construction. You see, I put that in as a joke question, and, and wham, back comes, back comes Garrett and tells us the most profound thing we heard in this episode. <laughs> Maybe. Well, more, more, more profound than my joke about eating a chicken korma. Gee, tough crowd. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that brings us to the end of this week's bunker the first and i suspect last one to accuse boris johnson of pulling out of anything too early as usual it's time for escape routes what are the tv films music books and miscellaneous that elevate our panelists souls above the odorous landfill that is current affairs justin much of an escape, but I've just finished watching um, Steve McQueen's three-part documentary, Uprising, which is currently on iPlayer. Uh, it's a very sort of deep-dive retelling of the new crossfire of the early 80s uh, and the events leading both up to it and then after it. It's an absolutely brilliant, brilliant piece of television, much more complicated than I was expecting, and I would fully recommend it. Lovely. I hear... 
I spent the last week at the Edinburgh Fringe, uh, which uh, obviously didn't happen in 2020 and is happening in a more condensed form this year. And I've never experienced a fringe quite like it. And it was absolutely glorious. And if you're anywhere nearby, I would recommend uh, going down. How about you, Garrett? What's been entertaining you? Um, reading an underrated author named John Williams. And as I normally do, I've just consumed all four of his books in a row. His most famous is uh, Butcher's Crossing which if you like Blood Meridian and that kind of stuff, then it's a great book. Very good recommendations all. Um, if anyone is interesting, I've been rewatching Dexter because of some conversation that happened about genius title sequences got me onto Dexter and there's a new series of Dexter coming out later in the year. So I thought oh. I'll start it all from the beginning, watch it with my other half who's never seen it. So that's been wonderful. And that's the end of this week's bunker. My profuse thanks again to the lovely Justin Quirk. Thank you very much, Alex. To the glorious Ahir Shah. Thank you. And to our very special guest, Garrett Brown. Hello. We'll be back tomorrow with another Bunker Daily and the full-length show this time next week. Do follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your favourite app. Before we go, let me say a huge thank you to everyone who attended our live show last week, both in person at the Leicester Square Theatre and to those who dialed in on Zoom. The event was a great success, and for those of you who weren't able to attend in person, we hope to announce more live shows soon, so please stay tuned. And if you missed the event or want to relive it all over again, please do consider backing us on Patreon. You'll be funding our producers and studio and helping us to bring you quality podcasts on the regular. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast and you'll be able to get the live stream from last Tuesday night, exclusive merchandise and a warm feeling inside and a shout out on the show. Here are some now. Best wishes from me to Lewis Smith, Pip Wilcox and Neil O'Malley. Many thanks from me to Robin Hambrook, Tom Ritchie and Sarah Pickles. And finally, best wishes from me to Andrew Davey, Trisha Cusden and Andrew Stubbs. The Bunker was produced and presented by Alex Andreu with Justin Quirk and Ahir Shah. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelna Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Our intern was Nat Amos. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>